I was telling Rick this is a new experience for me in, uh, in preaching to have a, a mask on my face. Uh, so I hope that won't interfere with me being able to project so that you can hear me this morning. Our text is Psalm 46. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 46. I hope this is already a very familiar passage to each one of you. Hear now the word of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We live in a world where reports of widespread devastation and previously unbelievable horror are becoming almost commonplace. The current record-breaking onslaught of hurricanes has many of us remembering when the torrential rains of five years ago caused historic flooding right here in Columbia and across South Carolina, damaging some 160,000 homes and resulting in an economic impact of some $12 billion. When adjusted for inflation, that matched Hurricane Hugo of 1989. Then, at the same time, on our television, we see videos of the maelstrom of wildfires in the western United States, which have devoured whole towns, as well as millions of acres of forest, leaving land and lives deeply scarred. And beyond the threat of sudden natural disasters, we are still faced each day with the relentless COVID-19 pandemic which continues to turn our lives upside down with potentially life-threatening illness and quarantines and loss of jobs and businesses and incomes, leaving many Americans hurting and grieving. But perhaps most shocking of all, is the deterioration of the, the very fabric of our society around us, given the way extremists have seized upon what were 
understandable protests against recent acts of injustice. And extremists have twisted these into opportunities for personal greed and for anarchy, turning police officers across this land into targets and seeking to foster intimidation instead of dialogue and reconciliation. We used to worry about the threat of terrorism from abroad. But now the greatest threat has become those seeking to dismantle the very foundations of our great democracy from within. And of course, we are here only coming face to face with evil forces that so many others, particularly Christians, have faced for centuries in other parts of the world. We live in a world where life can suddenly become dire and overwhelming. How are we as Christians to view these events as they crash in upon us and those we love and upon others, especially our fellow Christians around the world? Is life in this world simply out of control? Where is God in all of this? And why does he allow people, especially Christians, to suffer devastating pain and loss? To help us to begin to get a handle on such questions, I'm taking us this morning to Psalm 46. The same passage I spoke from 19 years ago on the Sunday following 9-11 using the title, When the World Crashes Down Upon Us. So, first, in these opening three verses, we find, we find we need to remember God's presence in the midst of the tumult. Here in Psalm 46, verses 2 and 3 paint a powerful picture of heart-wrenching chaos when the, the very foundations of the world around us are crumbling and giving way under our feet. Clearly, the psalmist is envisioning a terrifying earthquake. He describes mountains, which in the rendering of the NIV version, mountains which quake with their surging. And the earth gives way. And cliffs that had once seemed impregnable fall into the heart of the sea. But as you meditate on these verses, you quickly realize the picture he paints encompasses every form of overwhelming crisis that we encounter in this life. Yet the psalmist, the inspired psalmist, is telling us that if we know the living God, we need not fear, he declares in verse 2. We need not give in to terror or hopelessness, for we have a refuge, a place of safety and deliverance. Actually, not simply a place, but a person 
The same one whose strong hands formed those mighty mountains and those vast oceans. Those same hands who formed even us as well. You see, God's word declares that he is not absent when these crises of life occur. That he is neither unaware nor unmoved. But rather, our great God is present and available to us day and night in a time of crisis. Do you see how the English Standard Version renders the end of verse 1? That he is a very present help in trouble. The Hebrew root behind that word for very present emphasizes that we can count on God's availability to those who trust in him. Flip a few pages in your Bible to Psalm 62. I want to read verses 5 through 8 of Psalm 62. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now let me be clear this morning. It is not that God has promised to always remove the fearful circumstances engulfing us. But rather he has promised to give those who are trusting in him security and strength through his loving presence so as to empower us to live for him and to do what needs to be done in that moment whether it is dealing with a personal crisis or a natural disaster, or even acts of terrorism and persecution. Thus, in fact, God is our refuge and our strength, says the beginning of verse 1. And he wants us to not only remember his presence, but to rely, to claim, to depend on his power. As the Apostle Paul reminded us, in the familiar verses in Philippians chapter 4, if you would turn to Philippians 4, I'll read verses 12 and 13. Paul said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now in our text, the psalmist changes images in verses 4 through 7. From God in the midst of the tumult to God in the city. To reinforce his point that God always dwells with his people. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again from Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her 
when morning dawns. Here the picture is apparently intended to convey the image of a city under siege. Now, as you may know, the description, the city of God, is one of the great themes of the Bible. Carrying through from God's choice of Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel and the site of the temple. By the way, I encourage you to read Psalm 48 about the beauty and significance of Jerusalem this afternoon, Psalm 48. But that imagery, that metaphor of the city of God carries through, culminating in the vision God gave John of the heavenly Jerusalem, recorded for us in Revelation 21 and 22. Both the tabernacle and the temple had symbolized that God was present in the midst of his people. That he doesn't simply keep his eye on us, but he has come to us and he dwells with us as part of his frequently reaffirmed covenant commitment. I will be your God and you will be my people. And of course, this was ultimately fulfilled in the coming of his son. Emmanuel, literally God with us. And then in Christ's gift to the people of God of his indwelling Holy Spirit. Now the writer's reference in Psalm 46 to a river may at first surprise you if you know anything about Jerusalem. For Jerusalem is not located on a river. In fact, under King Hezekiah, the Israelites had to dig a tunnel 1,700 feet long to reach a spring on the other side of the Kidron Valley beyond the walls of Jerusalem. They did this to create a secure water supply which ended inside the wall in the famous Pool of Siloam. That precious water helped them to withstand a long siege by the Assyrians, which is described in 2 Chronicles 32. Now in Bible times, fresh running water was known as living water. And that's why this imagery in verse 4 would have been so meaningful to Old Testament readers, for it symbolizes God's commitment to bless and provide for his people. But there's more to grasp here. Both the prophet Ezekiel and the apostle John in the book of Revelation conclude their vivid prophecies with images of a great life-giving river flowing out from the temple, from the very throne of God, which obviously pictures the water of life which Christ said he alone can give us. In that regard, let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 10, where Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. Verses 10 and 13. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God 
And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water swelling up to eternal life. Do you see that if we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, he is able to defeat those seeking to harm us. Just as God miraculously destroyed that invading Assyrian army that is described again in 2 Chronicles 32, look specifically at verse 21. Or, he is equally able, and this is more frequently the case, to sustain us in the midst of whatever is attacking us, whether it is physical disease or natural disaster or the loss of a loved one or the loss of our job or whatever other circumstance may be threatening to overwhelm us. So let me read one more time verses 4 through 7 of our text. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, and this is my third and final point, God's victory is never in doubt. That is the message of these closing verses. Though he has promised us that ultimately there will be overflowing life and joy and eternal peace. Now there is conflict and frequently hardship. For we live in a fallen world. A world infected by sin and rebellion against his authority and therefore under God's judgment. So it should not surprise us that all around us is pain and death, which God told Adam and Eve would be the result of their sin, as well as ours. But God also announced In Genesis 3, and John Rogers was pointing this out last week, that he would defeat sin and Satan using one descended from that first couple. That seed which points to Jesus Christ is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is fully man as well as fully God. Let me read that verse again to you, uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, where God is speaking to Satan. 
in the form of the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly shall you go and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We need to always remember that God is working out his purposes in all of history and in our very own lives. And his ultimate purpose is not that we would always be pleased. His ultimate purpose is that he will always be glorified. So again from our text, I'll read verses 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then the very end of verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. To this end, he will oppose and defeat all of Satan's schemes and all of our proud human rebellion. And yet at the same time, he is often using our pain to not only humble us, but to bring us to himself as objects of his love and even to enable those he has brought to himself to grow in grace. Thus our Lord Jesus frequently exhorted his disciples not to be afraid. For example, if you look in John 14, verse 27, our Lord Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Those who do place their trust in Jesus Christ receive the forgiveness of all of their sins and the gift of eternal life. And thus find what Paul calls the peace which passes all understanding in Philippians 4, 7. Jesus spoke about this peace which only Christians can know. Again in the Gospel of John chapter 16, verse 33. 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the, the calm, the rest in the eye of the storm, which God himself is calling on us 
to claim here in the opening words of verse 10 of our text. So let me turn back to Psalm 46, the opening words of verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Now that phrase, be still, doesn't just mean be quiet. The Hebrew translated here as be still literally means cease striving. In other words, quit carrying the world on your shoulders and realize that if we belong to Almighty God, the one who is loving and faithful and righteous in all his ways, that as his beloved children, we can and we should and we must depend on him in all the storms of our lives. On those days when it seems the earth is about to give way under your feet, turn to this inspired song, this powerful reminder of the presence and the power of our great God, who will always achieve his purposes for our good, and for his glory. So I'll read verses 10 and 11. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. No wonder Martin Luther was moved by this psalm to write his powerful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we used to begin our service this morning. Just to remind you of several phrases. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. We tremble not at even Satan's schemes, Luther wrote. For one little word shall fell him. And I think you know, I hope you know, that word which Luther was referencing is the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death for all his people. His kingdom is forever. Amen.